The design of everyday things like water meters and insurance forms isn't sexy, but it can impact millions of people and even help prevent disasters. Today we talk to Jared Spool about the massive impact of applying great design to unsexy things can have on all kinds of businesses. This is Design Driven, the podcast about using design thinking to build great products and lasting companies. Whether you're running a startup or trying something new inside a Fortune 1000, the tools, methods, and insights we talk about will help you create things people love. And now, your host, Jay Cornelius. You know, I got to say, I'm super excited to have today's guest on the show. We have Jared Spool. He is the founder of UIE and the co-founder of Center Center. Jared, welcome to the show. How are you today? I am fantastic. How are you? I'm doing really good. You know, the weather here is a little bit gloomy today, but it's not bringing me down too much. Um, things are rolling along just fine. It's it's good. Yeah, no, it's, it's, we've had a rainy week up here. It was in the 40s for most of the week, and it was really weird because two weeks ago it was 84 degrees, and I, and then the week before that it was snowing. Right. Yeah. But yeah. fortunately, we no longer need science. Yeah. Yeah. So your weather has a personality disorder, too. Yes, it does. <laughs> yeah. So um, for, for a lot of people who are listening, you probably don't need much of an introduction. I mean, you are pretty well known in the world of uh, helping people make their apps and, and services and products and stuff better in the world of user experience. Um, but for those of you out there um, who don't know Jared, Jared, how about give us an introduction to who you are and what you're up to? Uh, well, uh, I'm a, uh, a short dude who, who, uh, lives outside Boston, Massachusetts, and I am the, the founder of UIE and the co-founder of Center Center. UIE is a research company that, that studies how organizations create uh, a competitive advantage through great design and Center Center is a, uh, a school in Chattanooga, Tennessee, for uh, to create the next generation of industry-ready UX designers. That's, that's yeah, that's, just, that's it in a nutshell, right? Yeah, I think so. So over the years, I mean, UIE has been around a while, and over the years, you've probably seen the industry change quite a bit. But the core principles probably have remained unchanged. So, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the kind of work that you're doing, and who you're doing it for, and what kind of results you're seeing, and Kind of walk us through a, a day in the life of Jared's pool. <laughs> uh, well, most of my days are on airplanes somewhere, um, but uh, uh, yeah, no. The the basically what we do these days is is we spend time really trying to understand what makes uh, an organization succeed through great design. So uh, it it has come about in the last. You know, we've been around for almost 30 years, and in the last decade, uh, design has really sort of come into the forefront. And you know, it's appeared on the front of Time Magazine and Harvard Business Review, and and it is now something that companies pay attention to, thanks to organizations like Apple and Tesla and Disney. And right, we we uh, finally got a seat at the table, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the thing we found was that there actually was no table. But yeah, the the <laughs> that was that was the secret. Um, but uh, the the we design is now something that companies realize they have to pay attention to, and companies that are not 
conventionally in businesses and industries where design played a big role are suddenly finding themselves deep in design, like GE, which, you know, is realizing that their energy business is all about being able to make sure that uh, the devices are as efficient, you know, the turbines are as efficient as possible and that they're retired they're not offline for longer than they need to be for repair and that the way they, um, uh, they can do that is through big data analytics that have to be presented to repair supervisors to make sure that someone is out there doing corrective repairs before the problem gets too bad and, and, and the thing goes offline for weeks. And those types of issues now have design at their focus because everybody's looking at how effective, how efficient, how useful, how uh, uh, productive can they make their equipment. And that that's changed everything, right? Right. Uh, I was talking to a company in Alabama that uh, makes water meters, you know, these, these devices that plug into your house that tell the the city or town how much water you've you've used, and up until five years ago, seven years ago, these things were always mechanical devices with little spinning wheels, and and the ta- the city would send you a form to fill out, or they'd send somebody into your house to read this thing, and you'd have to mark down how, what the reading is on the thing, and you send it back, and that's how they calculate your water bill, mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, the first companies figured out, well, what if we made those displays digital? So now they have software in these devices. And then somebody said, well, what if we actually put a little radio transmitter in them? And that way, uh, the, the, the town or the city can, can just drive by, uh, and read it from their van and not have to go into the house to read it. Uh, what if we have these talk to a, a mesh network that's spread throughout the city and the, the city doesn't have to send anybody out, right? Mm-hmm. It's always reporting and we can give you up to the minute water usage data. Right. Uh, and what if we actually put an email, uh, that was tied to this device that, that sends you the house renter or owner a message saying, hey, your water usage has spiked. Do you have a leak somewhere? Do you, or is something going on? Is this, are you, were you expecting this? Um, uh, suddenly you've got, uh, you've got all this design involved that was never in the water meter business before. And right. they are wholly ill-equipped to be competitive in this space. And what happens is companies like Nest show up and take over industries that they were never in before from market leaders like Honeywell. And Honeywell is completely left holding the bag because they never thought design was important. Right. And they never saw it coming. And they never saw it coming. Right. So now everybody's looking for it. Yep. Everybody's looking yep. for it. You know, what's interesting about that example you just gave is um, – you know, suddenly is is perhaps the wrong way to describe it because those those iterative improvements happened over years and perhaps decades. So the the pace of innovation was so slow that when somebody comes along who actually pays attention to design and pays attention to how it can yield 
uh, greater results or faster results or whatever, uh, they're just upended. They're just you know, completely tossed aside because somebody just blows right past them. Right. Yeah. But for years, everybody thought design was make it pretty. Right. They didn't realize design was actually solve problems in new ways that actually change the game. Yep. Yep. And now they believe that. Right. Now they get that. You know, sometimes they call it design thinking. Yeah. Which well, is, the smart companies know, do. Yeah. Well, and yeah. And, and, and people are, are realizing it. I mean, every industry is affected by this, even ones that, you know, that felt as far away from consumers as, as you could get. Right. You know, like the water meter business. Exactly, like the water meter. Yeah, because that's not something you think about in the course of your day-to-day life. It's like how well designed is my water meter and what kind of impact can that have on my quality of life as a whole. But then when they get that email from the city saying, hey, your water usage is above normal, uh, do you have some kind of leak? And then they go outside and find that you know, somebody left the hose dripping. Yeah. You know, that's, you know, that's a huge benefit to everybody. Exactly, exactly. And and. Um, that, uh, that thing, right. That that, no one, no new homeowner is giving a tour of their house and saying, Oh, and I got to show you, I got to show you the water meter, right? This is like (laughs) the coolest part of the house, right? No one is ever going to say that, but yet that is what this company has to deal with now. Is, well, and, is they have to be the you know in their minds the coolest part of the house. Yeah, and and that kind of thing rolls up into something you would say about a house that it's uh, lead certified or highly energy efficient or something along right. those lines, which you know is obvious value proposition to somebody who is buying a home. Exactly, exactly, and and so all of these things are now becoming basic expectations, and uh, and that's. Uh, that's really fascinating, but we need more designers than we've ever needed before because all these industries are, are getting into this in a way that, that have never needed to think about this before. Right. And, and I'm so glad that you brought up an example of something that isn't software, that isn't a, a mobile app that, you know, helps you get a burrito delivered to your office. You know, those are kind of trivialities when you think about the impact that something as boring as a water meter might have across an entire population, right? Yeah, except for the fact that, you know, California just came out of two years of amazing drought and smarter water meters would have actually been really helpful. Yeah, exactly. For, for doing that. And there were people going without water. And uh, though that, you know, that could have been prevented in many ways. Yep. And so, uh, you know, yeah, it's, you can say, well, a water meter is not software, but that's, that's what I learned in Alabama was that these water meters are actually now more than 50% software. And, and this is that sort of software is eating the world thing, right? I mean, it, it, it's infiltrating every corner of every business. And, oh, and here's the other thing, right? That's, that water meter had damn well better be secure. Yeah, Because exactly. if it's not secure, it's someone's going to figure out a way to use it as a, you know, robot zombie bot mm-hmm. of some sort. And the next thing you know, your water meter is shutting down Twitter. 
Yeah, yeah. I, f- I forget who said it, but somewhere recently, someone said the Internet of Things, it may have been you, said the Internet of Things is just other people's computers in your house. It's exactly what it is. Yeah, I think that was me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, I, I think there's a good articulation of the problem, right? Is you know, All types of industries, even the ones where you might least expect it, are now having these really interesting design challenges that have never been framed as design challenges before. And they're starting to realize the importance of thinking through uh, things at a very early stage and, and thinking things in a way that's very iterative and very uh, you know, human-centered, if you will. And you're thinking about how do we solve this problem in a way that benefits both sides of the, uh, of the transaction. So um, what else are you seeing out there that might be a good example of, of how a... a relatively simple design exercise or maybe just taking the time to think through the problem has yielded, you know, a pretty surprising result. Um, there's, there's a, uh, a lot of work that's being done. Uh, I've spent a lot of time recently with insurance companies that are trying to figure out how do they get um, people to understand what they're purchasing in insurance, right? Because insurance is this complex world of coverages and deductibles and waivers and and all these things that use this language that nobody that nobody in life uses on a day to day basis. Mm-hmm. And really, what people want to know is, you know, because all insurance is 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 a gamble. You know, no, the insurance companies don't like to say this, but you're gambling. What you're saying is, uh, I'm going to pay out a little bit of money because I'm going to expect something bad to happen. And I'm hoping it doesn't happen. But uh, uh, when it does happen, I'll win because the insurance will cover it. Whereas if I don't pay it out, I'm taking the bet that that bad thing is not going to happen. But if it does happen, I'm sort of screwed because now I have to put, put out, out of my own pocket. Right. And, uh, people, people understand that part and then they get into, well, deductibles and waivers and premiums and, and, uh, coverages and they don't know what they're getting. Right. Is $50,000 bodily injury coverage better than $100,000 bodily injury coverage. I am the least qualified person on the planet to make that decision, yet you are asking me to pick which one I want. Right. Uh, and so what what insurance companies are realizing is if they can be helpful in uh, uh, in a human way, they can get people to uh, to make that decision better. And then they're not feeling like, what am I paying for insurance for? If you don't cover this thing, well, you know, what do you mean? I have a $5,000 deductible. Why am I doing that? You know, uh, uh, what does that actually mean? What, what do you mean? I don't get, I, you know, my car got this major thing, but because it costs $4,000 to repair and I have a $5,000 deductible, I have to pay for it. What am I paying for insurance for? Right. And, they don't understand that they made a decision up front not knowing what the language meant, what not knowing what they were buying, and not realizing, hey, if you have a $5,000 deductible, 
that means you're going to pay a much less premium, but you should probably keep $5,000 somewhere because the first $5,000 you're responsible for. Right. And so it's a good thing if you have decent savings, but if you don't have decent savings, maybe you don't want a $5,000 deductible. Yep. And, uh, and the thing is, is that the insurance company, they're the house in the casino. They're playing the odds. They can give you a lower rate because they think you, the odds of you going over six, over $5,000 is slim. And they're not, and they're, you know, the odds of you going substantially over $5,000 is swimmer. So they're going to give you a lower rate. They can actually tell you what they expect your accident to be. Here's, what, here's what's going to happen if you have an accident. Here's what we think about that. Mm-hmm. And so, so now they can start to share that information in an intelligent way that actually gets you on their side saying, hey, you're a safe driver and you haven't had much risk. And we could charge you a lot of money. And, and frankly, if you, if you want the, the peace of mind and a small deductible, we will continue to charge you a lot of money. But you could actually take the money you give us every month and put it into this little fund, and you would save up enough money to cover your own thing. What if you did that? What if we actually worked with you on that? What if we actually combined insurance with a savings plan and over time – in addition to putting money every month away in our insurance, you're also putting some percentage of it away in a savings plan. And when that savings plan gets to a certain point, we're actually going to reduce your premium and increase your savings. And now, now I've got insurance that I sort of understand, and I'm beginning to get my head around this. And I can, you know, they can give me charts and information and say, this is what's going to happen. Now, let's say you have an accident three years from now, and this is how much it costs. This is the impact it's going to be on you. And suddenly people can get smarter, but you can do it in a, in a way that, that actually helps people see what they're buying. And suddenly when you, when you show them that kind of compassion – people are more interested in doing business with you and it creates more loyalty, yeah, of course. It creates of more course. stuff. So now we're seeing this sort of caring approach coming to industries that traditionally have not been caring. And you need design to pull that off. There's no way you can do that without having a sophisticated designed approach to what is it that we're really selling? Not we sell an insurance policy, but we really sell peace of mind. I mean, that's what our marketing keeps telling us. That's what we're selling. But does our product represent peace of mind? No. It actually makes us scared because it has all this words and and coverages and deductibles and constraints and, and, and limitations. And none of that delivers peace of mind. Right. It only confuses things. Right. How do we deliver peace of mind in our insurance packaging? And that suddenly changes the ball game for companies that again conventionally have not thought of design and you know they're like well this is the way we've done business for a hundred years yes it is <laughs> and that's why you need to change right yeah yeah exactly so when we were talking last week um on this topic of insurance companies uh, you mentioned something that I, I found pretty interesting which is helping um do something that was pretty mundane, pretty boring, like, you know, update a form or make something easier to use, but it has far reaching impact for not just efficiency of the people working there, but the happiness of the people working there. Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh yeah. 
I mean, one of the things, one of the debates that's going around right now is, is, you know, customer experience versus user experience. And to me, the difference is, the primary difference is, is that not all users are customers. Some of the users are the employees. Right. And if the employees don't like their job, they take it out on their customers. You see this time and time again. Uh, uh, Businesses where the employees are not happy uh, are more brusque, are more cold to their customers. They're less able to help them solve problems. They're less, they feel less empowered. Uh, uh, this is a plague inside the airline industry. Yeah. Ergo that airline you spend a lot of time on. Yes, yes, yes. The, the, and, the, and just as an aside, if anybody doesn't already follow Jared on Twitter, uh, you should, because his ongoing commentary about United is absolutely hysterical. <laughs> I'm glad you think so. I always wonder how many Twitter followers uh, I lose over my constant nagging. But yeah, I've been on. Well, a, I'm sure it's a, not hysterical to you at the time, but you know, to the to the idle onlooker, um, just the the level of incompetence that they display on a continuing basis is astounding. Yeah. So this, the backstory of that is that is that I wanted to. So I read this article, wow, six seven years ago when uh, Twitter was just first coming out about airlines like Delta and JetBlue that were making a concerted effort to, to use Twitter to provide better customer service. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to see how much that really uh, was true, how much that, 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 that actually was key. And what I and so I started, and at the time I was flying on United, I think at the time I was what they call 1K, which means I had somehow mismanaged my years to, to actually fly more than 100,000 miles on a single airline. And um, uh, I never understood why it's 1K, which is 1,000 when you have to fly 100,000 miles to qu- qualify for it, but okay. Uh, so... So that's so. So I started seeing if I could actually make my flights better by tweeting. And at first, I was you know, uh, uh, hey, your flight's late. What can we do about that? They're like, oh, we're sorry. We are sorry for your inconvenience. And and so I I started paying attention to their language and I started calling them on it. You know, being sorry for my inconvenience is not actually fixing the problem. How do we fix the problem? And and so the, uh, over time, I've I've created this dialogue to see how much I can get the attention of the United social media people, and not just United. I do the same thing on every airline I fly. I just fly United the most, American the second most. So these days, they get the wrath of that. Uh, occasionally, other airlines, um, and uh, uh, but the idea was to see if if actually paying attention to them uh, uh, and really sort of keeping them to the promises they're making would actually change anything. And in the process, I started studying how the airline worked. And this brings me back to what we were talking about before, which is United Airlines is a network of very unhappy employees. They have unhappy flight attendants, unhappy pilots, unhappy gate agents. 
they are more happy today than they were two years ago, but two years ago they were miserable. And the main reason was because of the United Continental merger. Uh, in the process of the merger, they required concessions from all the unions that required that they work more hours for less pay. And so they got really unhappy. And, and this, this is not a surprise. And as a result, they would take it out on their customers in all sorts of small, different ways, uh, like only doing exactly what's asked of them by the contract and not doing any more. And mm -hmm. if the customer asks for something because they need some help, you know, like uh, uh, an older woman is confused about the Chicago airport and asks the flight attendant how to get to her next plane, the flight attendant will say, I'm sorry, I'm not responsible for that. You need to talk to a gate agent at the top of the jet ramp. And so the, the older woman makes her way to the top of the jet ramp and finds there's no gate agent there, what she's supposed to do, right? Mm -hmm. And And... This sort of thing happens all the time across the network. And uh, and so I started calling them on it and saying, look, why are you why are you letting this happen? And I would get these sort of innocuous, you know, yeah, there's nothing we can do about it type responses. And and this is part of the problem because they're not thinking United basically has an attitude that as long as the plane takes off and lands close to when it's supposed to, they've succeeded. But that's not the customer's approach. The customer's approach is, you know, if my vacation goes without me having to think about my flight, maybe that's a success. If my vacation goes such that from the moment I start planning my vacation to the time I get on the plane, to the time I get off the plane, to the time I enjoy my vacation, to the time I'm coming back, United consistently exceeds my expectations, uh, then I've got an experience that I'm happy about. But if they, if they just do the minimum they need to do to honor the ticket. And in some cases, you know, like what we saw uh, in Chicago a few weeks ago where they beat somebody for not leaving the seat when they decided they weren't going to honor his ticket. Uh, uh, I'd like to say that's an isolated thing. You know, certainly getting police to drag someone off a plane is an unusual thing. But I have seen that scenario play out in so many different ways, uh, including to me. Uh, that this is a common thing that happens on United. They yeah, will tell you that they are not going to honor the promise that you made, that they made yeah. to you. Yeah, and, when you purchased a ticket. Yeah. You know, I, and they charge me a lot of money. You know, I, I give them hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. Yeah. And, and, uh, uh, and, they, and, and they, they don't treat me any different than they treat, you know, that guy or anybody else. You know, that easily could have been me. In fact, people were checking up to make sure I was okay after the incident happened because they thought it could have been me. Yeah, you were the first person I thought of. <laughs> so many people have told me that. Yeah, well, I, I, I expected, you know, who knows where you are on any given day. And so I kind of halfway Mostly expected. <laughs> right, I but I halfway plan. expected that you were on that plane. Yeah, no, I had to. Or in the terminal I, or something. You know, it was like, it was, you know... I think Facebook is going to create a little special thing for me that says whenever something happens on United, they're going to check to see that I'm okay and I can notify my whole <laughs> yeah, network. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, that was a fun little tangent. But back to the um, the the insurance form thing. 
Yeah. Because uh, that was super interesting. So, uh, so. Right, right. So an insurance <laughs> company has forms that, that users fill out uh, on their website. They also have forms that employees fill out. Uh, make those things easier to use. I mean, that's that making a form easier to use seems like a trivial thing. But there is so much that goes into designing a quality form that it's not trivial at all. It is actually really hard to do. And the right. skills required uh, are really important. And so, you know, most forms are poorly designed because of that. And as a result, um, they're frustrating. And people don't understand what they're being asked for. You know, pick from these numbers what level of coverage you want. Okay, how am I supposed to decide? Right, and without context, right? Exactly. I don't have your knowledge. And, you know, and and I used to do this presentation where I would uh, put up a picture of uh, President Taft. And I'd, I'd ask the audience without saying this is President Taft. I'd say, who is this? You know, anybody here know who this is? And nobody would answer. Say, somebody must know who this is. I'll give you a hint. He was a president. Still no answer. And then I'd say, okay, we're not going to continue with the presentation until you can give me this answer. And I would just sit down. And they'd be looking around like, what the <laughs> hell is going on? I'm like, this is how most forms are designed. <laughs> we ask the user right. a question they don't know the answer to, and we won't let them go forward unless they know the answer. What are, we, what are they supposed to do? <laughs> and... Uh, you know, why is that acceptable there, but not acceptable in this context? Right. Yeah. What's the big difference? Because you're basically forcing somebody to go look elsewhere to try to figure out what they should put into that little box to be able to get to the next step. Right. Right. Or the, the, uh, the form that pops up from a company I do business with every week that pretends that I've never done business with them before and asks me the same information over and over and over and over. Right. You know, and it's not just name and address. I buy a ticket from an airline every week because that's my job. And every week, their airline site asks me if I want insurance for my flight. And every week, I say no. That's not going to change in the future. Right. Why do you keep asking me? I mean, I know damn well why you keep asking me. I know damn well why you make this, the default be yes, because you make an extra $10 on my ticket if I say yes, even if I say yes accidentally. Yep. And sometimes they use some kind of dark pattern to get you to accidentally click yes so they can make their $10. Oh, yeah. The, my favorite one now uh, was one that, one of the airlines, I can't remember which one, was playing with, where they, uh, uh, they, the yes is, yes, I want to pay, and then in big, bold numbers, $31.29 to make sure my vacation is uninterrupted. And then the no was, no, I will risk my $427.47 fare <laughs> if my vacation gets interrupted. And, right. and if you just look at the bold numbers, the second option is bold, has a bigger number than the first one. So you're going to choose the first one, right? 
And uh, it's like, wow, that's that's deviously bad. Yeah. Shaking yeah, and, and uh, 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 making it look like a higher number. Ooh, bad, bad, bad. Well, and the funny thing is they put just as much effort into being devious as yes. they could have into making it a better experience and actually building some trust and some loyalty with the, the, the customer. Right. But this is, this is a product manager who thinks, oh, we can get them to buy insurance they don't need. Right. Yeah. And that's yeah. that whole same mentality. Of right. We're designing the interface, but we're not designing the overall experience. Yeah, and I think that goes back to a short-term short-term revenue metric that they're trying to beat, right? Yeah. So, you know, the the revenue office says, you know, we need to increase our, you know, ancillary revenue by X percent in the next quarter, and so that's what drives those kind of decisions as opposed to looking at what type of revenue increase you could gain from customer loyalty or from providing some better um, experience for somebody so they recommend somebody else or they actually book more flights with you because they enjoyed the last one. Right. Yeah, so it's, right. it's a pretty myopic and, and short-sighted it, way of looking at things. It absolutely is. And, and, and you know what? In some industries right now, that's, that's where the money is. Right. Right. You know, the 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 airline industry is recording record profits and a lot of those profits are coming from those short term revenue goals of uh, we're going to charge you for bags. We're going to charge you for, you know, seat, sitting in seats that have two more inches of leg room. We're going to charge right. you for uh, uh, for, you know, a, a meal in a cardboard box that isn't, you know, that's crackers and cheese. You know, yep. we're 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 going to charge you for each of these things. We're going to nickel and dime you to death, and report that those things bring in billions of dollars of revenue, and you're going to love us for it because we're going to pretend that this is keeping fares well when, in fact, fares are based on demand, and they're you know they're not any lower than they were a decade ago. Yeah, and meanwhile, they ignore the models of Southwest, who is not doing those things and still has record profits. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's pretty pretty interesting to see how those things play out. So, um earlier in the in the chat, you mentioned that we need more designers than ever because more companies are recognizing the importance of of looking at things through the lens of problem solving and, you know, call it design thinking or human-centered design or whatever you want to call it. It's essentially solving a problem in a creative way, right? Right. Um so you're the co-founder of a school that helps train those designers. Tell us a little bit about that and, and how that works. Yeah, so so uh, Leslie Jensen Inman and I, uh, five years ago now, uh, started down this wow, has path. has it been that long? Yeah, it's been that wow. long. Isn't that crazy? It is, yeah. Yeah, started down this path uh, from different places. Uh, she was uh, a professor at the University of Tennessee, Chattanooga, teaching design uh, to students who were coming through their art program uh, and was frustrated that the design curriculum she was working with weren't preparing people to work in industry and weren't preparing them to go do good in the world, helping community. And uh, they just weren't getting the skills. They were focusing on the wrong things. And so she went to get her doctorate in education and her dissertation 
was on how do we create a modern 21st century trading mechanism for designers. And in particular, she was focused on web designers at the time. I was on the other side of the country uh, thinking about uh, the problems my clients were having. So I was focused on helping companies be better at getting products out that delighted customers. And it was clear that design was now going to play a big role and that the world needed more designers and that we were not producing them at the rate that companies were demanding them. And so I was trying to figure out how do we get more designers into the world. And a friend of ours who I think you know, uh, Dan Rubin. Do you know Dan Rubin? Yeah, I know Dan. Yeah. I was just talking about Dan last night, actually. Yeah, yeah. Dan is one of these people who comes up in small batches. I find myself talking, not talking about him for a while and then talking about him a lot. And I miss him. Hey, Dan, I miss you. Uh, 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 Yeah, come back to the States, Dan. Exactly. We need you. We need smart people like you. Uh, um, uh, uh, I was talking to Dan at the time, and we were, I was talking about this problem. And, and he says, have you talked to Leslie? And I've, I'd known Leslie for a long time, but I hadn't realized uh, what you've been doing. And I'm like, no. And he, so he starts telling me what she's working on. I'm like, oh, wow. And then like two days later, I see a tweet from Leslie that says, uh, uh, I have just uh, turned in my resignation at, at University of Tennessee. I don't know what my future will hold, but I'm sure it will be a great adventure. And so I sent her a uh, a, a DM on Twitter. And I said, Hey, we should talk. And Dan says we should talk. And, and half an hour later, we're on the phone. And next thing you know, we're starting a school. And, and that was, that was sort of the start of it. And so the first thing we did was we went out and we talked to all these companies that were looking to hire designers about what they were looking for and what they need and all this stuff. And we ended up building a school that's based completely on what these folks need. And we, we, built it from the ground up because we're not affiliated with a university or uh, uh, any sort of existing education program. Uh, we could take what Leslie knew from her, from her doctorate degree in, in building an education program. We could build on that, but we didn't have to have all the restrictions of doing it inside of a, of a conventional university system and build something that was completely geared at creating designers for industry. And uh, four and a half years later, last fall, uh, uh, we got our first students. And they are it's a two-year program in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and they are six months in, and they are doing fantastic. They are way ahead of where we thought they were going to be. In fact, we're having trouble keeping up with them, which is a fantastic problem to wow. have. And... They are learning design at an amazing pace and creating creating work. They spend two-thirds of their time doing real-world projects. That's that's what makes us that's one of the things that makes us completely different from a conventional school, is that is that you're actually gaining work experience while you're learning. Because yeah, you par- partnered with actual companies and doing work with you know on real problems for real companies, right? Yeah, so companies like insurance companies give us projects to work on. And 
you know, there may be projects like redesign this form, but that form is a hard problem to solve. And the students have to learn about it. They have to understand the problem. They have to come up with alternative solutions. They have to get the company to buy into it. And then the company actually will, will, uh, if they like the designs the students are due, they give us development resources, and now our students are working with real developers, and they're seeing the thing built, and then they try it out with real users, and they see the users actually interact with it, and they make changes based on what they're learning. So it's a, it's a total integrated design process. And that integrated design process teaches uh, uh, the students how to solve problems and take them all the way through deployment, which was one of the things the hiring managers told us that they were really missing from folks coming out of school. In school, you learn a lot about the theory of design. You learn a lot about sort of solving big problems, you know, but a form is not a big problem. It's a ton of little problems and solving those little right. problems that's not a sexy class to teach. So they don't teach that class. And, exactly. and that, uh, we teach we teach a bunch of classes around that, but we also teach how to take apart the problems and see the really sexiness within them, and that changes everything. Yep. Yeah. It's, so it's instead of looking at it as one big problem, you know, you're you're curing the paper cuts and and preventing people from dying from paper cuts. Right. Right. And. Um, uh, That um, that very much uh, uh, focuses the students on really the skills that are necessary to be a good designer starting out in a company and really getting to understand. And, and one of the things is because they work with they'll work with five to eight different companies in their two years with the um, with the program. They learn how different companies work. This was another thing that the hiring companies told us was that was that uh, students come in from these programs believing that there's one right way to do design. And when they find out that real companies, no company does the one right way. And when, when they find out that the company they came to, they're like, what are we not capable of doing it right? Why, you know, why aren't we doing it right? And so we're not teaching them that there's one right way to do anything. In fact, one of the constant conversations we have is, uh, you know, in the design world, we use the same terms to mean different things. All so, the time. All it's the time. Painful. It is. And we're teaching them to live with that ambiguity and to say, hey, when someone says, yeah, we built personas, to ask them, what did they actually build? Because when somebody says that, there's like five different ways you can build personas, and some of them mm -hmm. are effective and some of them are not effective. Some of them are more effective on the marketing side. Some of them are more effective on the design side. Which version are they using? So we're actually asking them to ask the question and not just assume that if someone says personas, like, oh, I learned that in my second semester. I know what that is. No, you don't right. necessarily know what that is. And, and you need to ask, what does is, what is the persona actually say and, and, and what could it, how could it be helpful to me? And where will it actually not be helpful because they don't do it the way that I, that, uh, uh, I need for this particular project? And so, yeah, it's those, it's those foundational questions, right? Like, right. How, what do we know and how did we learn what we know? Exactly. Because sometimes that has a great influence on the way that you perceive the, the knowledge that you have. Yeah, so it's funny you mention that because – um, I, 
I've been doing this this little thing in, in workshops and talks that I give. I have people write down the major accomplishments that they did over the last week. So I have them, you know, open up a piece of paper, or bring up a file on their phone and jot in there. Uh, uh, what are the major things you accomplished last week? You know, think, you know, think of three to 10 things that you got done. And then next to each of those things, I want you to write down the percentage of, uh, that thing that you learned how to do in school. (laughs) Yeah. How many of them are above 10%? Very rarely do you get anybody above 25% with anything on their list. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, okay, if you didn't learn it in school, where did you learn how to do that? You know, you just had a successful week. You did a bunch of stuff. Where did you learn how to do all those things? And everybody goes, well, uh, I guess on the job. I'm like, okay. So if I'm building a school, I need to build a school that helps people learn on the job, not a school that's going to pretend to teach you everything and send you into the world and, and, and then disappoint you when you get out into the world. And more importantly, disappoint exactly. the people who hired you, who think you can do the work that you're supposed to be doing. Yep. So, so we basically are teaching students to learn because we can give them principles, we can give them foundation, but most importantly, we can teach them how to detect that something is not the way they expect and work with that. Yeah, you're teaching them how to ask smart questions and how to work with other people to create a solution, right? Right. Yeah, which ultimately is the thing that they're going to be doing when they get out into the workforce. Because that book you had in your first semester is not going to be relevant anymore. Right. Right. And and so by uh, teaching them to be flexible, by teaching them how to find resources. So this is one of the ways we've constructed it. Instead of giving them a textbook and telling them to read pages 54 through 65 tonight, we give them a bunch of things that they need to prove to us they they know you know uh, could be uh, for the for the user research course it's like tell me how you recruit participants tell me what the what the process for recruiting a participant is that's what we're going to grade you on and then we'll give you a list of starter resources that we have curated that could have these answers but we actually don't tell you which ones have the answers and then we say, don't limit yourself to just these things. And um, what happens is, is that our students get very good at going to the web and looking things up and finding that there's multiple answers and dealing with the fact that, hey, I found three different ways to recruit participants for, part, for usability studies, and each one said they were the best way. How do I know which is the best way? I'm like, that's a good question. What would you use yeah. to measure that, right? Because this is what real life is like. This is not, you know, school doesn't say there's only one best way, and I know the answer, and until you can tell me what it is, you have failed. Right. And so you have to gather all the information and put together the big picture and see how this works in its entirety. In my practice, we typically say that you know we're looking for that Venn diagram that has business value and user value, and where do those things overlap, and how do we make that overlap as much as possible? And uh, so ultimately, we're training people to identify that 
and giving them the skills to do the the critical thinking and you know whether that be the scientific method or you know whatever you're going to call it to to do that it's essentially teaching them to be a problem solver exactly exactly and and so problem solving is the number one skill that we're focusing on continuous learning and being a lifelong learner is key to problem solving so we we that's where we're focusing our efforts and and we are being completely upfront with our students saying this is uh what we are going to teach you in this school is going to be outdated in some way by the time you leave here and we're going right. to be honest about that and so we're going to constantly go back to the well and this is why we have this real life focus so every few months they're starting a new project from a new company and in that project, they're going to go back to basics and they're going to start asking the questions. What do they need? What do they want? What are they? And, and we're going to send them off and say, okay, remember what you learned about uh, typography? Well, here's the reality that this client works in and how typography is going to deal with for them. We didn't teach you that before, so you need to go figure that out now. Right. How does what you learned before going to fit into this world where these people are on this platform where the number of typefaces is limited and they only get like 16 fonts because they're doing this specialized thing and that's all that they can do. So how do you how do you work with that? Because we didn't we didn't teach you how to deal with that constraint before. Right. Or these guys are an, an entity that can't use any uh, fee based font kit. So they need only uh, royalty-free fonts. How do, you, how do you work with that? Right? And we didn't talk about that in class before, but now you have to learn about it. And we're not going to tell you how to do it. You have to figure it out and figure out how it fits into your world. And introducing those types of, of constraints gets them thinking about, I can handle anything a client throws at me. I just need to know, I just need to have a toolbox that lets me answer the questions and ask the right questions and figure out where the edge of the constraint is and can I go right up to it without going over it. Right. Yeah, so just giving them a toolkit to know um, how to ask smart questions and how to drive into a problem in a way that, that helps to reveal uh, the best practical solution for that particular right. problem at that point in time for that audience Right. And this is why this program takes two years. You know, there are so many programs popping up that are short. You know, they're 12 weeks, eight weeks. You know, I yeah. saw one that was uh, become a UX designer in 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 three and a half weeks. I'm like, really? <laughs> nope. And I look at the list of things that they do and it, it's crazy. One of our projects is five times the length of their pro of their program, and we're going to do five to eight of those projects in the two years, and that's not including classroom time. And that's insane, right? That's that's uh, um, uh, you can't be good at what you do in three and a half weeks. Yeah, there's no industry where that's possible. Zero. Right. Uh, the you, average project in a conventional design school. Uh, students are ex are expected to spend 30 hours outside of class working on the project. And that sounds like a lot when you have, you know, a class that's going to be a total of 18 or 24 hours, an additional 30 hours on top of it. That's more than twice, you know, 
twice the the length of the class, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, um, uh, or you know, doubles the length of the class in terms of the amount of effort you're going to put in. But in the workplace, we have a a name for the thirty hour point in a project. We call it Thursday. Yep. No projects are four days long. Projects are weeks long, months long, sometimes years long. Where do we prepare students to work on projects that are actually deep and and you iterate and you spend a lot of time thinking about how you're going to solve problems only to find out that you've solved the wrong problem and now you have to sort of go back and start again? Right. You know? That's what we need to teach students to be able to deal with. And well, we need longer projects. Yeah, because practically that's the stuff they're going to be dealing with when they get out into the real world. I mean, those are the things that we see every day. You know, somebody right. comes in with an assumption and the first thing we have to do is validate that assumption. And well, that's wrong. So now we're back at the drawing board. We've got to start completely over. And what they thought might take, you know, a few days or weeks is stretching into weeks and months. And you have to be equipped for that. You have to be able to have the tenacity and the and the really kind of the, the mental fortitude to know that there's a light at the end of the tunnel and have the tools to to find it. Yeah. Yep. yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so we're we're just about out of time. I want to be respectful of your time and. Um, so kind of in closing, what are your what are your thoughts around kind of the state of where things are going? And, you know, if you're a product owner or you're, you're doing a startup or whatever, you know, what are the things you need to be paying attention to and um, maybe some good resources for for learning more? Um, so, uh, uh, of course, you know, we uh, are always publishing what we're learning at UIE. Uh, we have. A great thought of the day newsletter and and uh, um, uh, a uh, regular articles and podcasts and things that that we produce that sort of delve into design problems um, and understanding how teams work uh, at Center Center. We're we're always updating on what's happening with the school and we're we're looking for new students. Uh, so if you know someone who, who, who design might be a good place for them, send them, send them our way. Plus, uh, uh, we're looking for companies to give us projects. So if you think you'd like to potentially hire our students and would like to, to, um, uh, be part of, uh, uh, our students' education, uh, then, then let us know. We'd love to talk to you about that. Um, uh, we have, uh, we also do conferences. Uh, we have our, uh, next week we have our, in May, we have our UX immersion conference in Portland. And then this spring or this fall, uh, we're going to have our, uh, UI 22. It's our 22, 22th, 22th year, our 22nd <laughs> year of, um, of the user interface conference. Can you believe that? Wow. That's congratulations. That's a, that's a yeah, long run. Started in 1996 and, and we're just going to keep doing it till we get it right. Yep. Um, uh, and we're just putting the lineup together for that. It's going to be fantastic. That's in Boston, uh, November, uh, 13th through 15th. And you can find out more about that at UI 22.com, uh, or UICONF.com. Uh, try and think what else. Um, 
uh, yeah, I think that's those are the big things. Oh, we have our All You Can Learn library, which is this uh, lovely uh, – we've collected up hundreds of experts, uh, presentations, seminars – and things and put them into the library and they've all, uh, they're all available. Uh, so you could, any topic, this is part of the curriculum that we've developed for the school is any topic, uh, you want to know that's related to UX. We've got multiple things on in, in the library. So yeah, that's a great resource. Yeah. Yeah. So if somebody wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do it? Is it Twitter or something else? Twitter, uh, uh, my email is, is jspool at uie.com. Uh, you can, uh, if you work in design and we're not connected on LinkedIn, by all means, connect up with me on LinkedIn. I love talking to people through LinkedIn. It gives me a chance to, uh, uh, answer their questions. And, and, uh, I like LinkedIn because, you know, when someone pops me a question that you know, I've never talked to them before, I can quickly look at their background and say, oh, they're in this industry. Cool. I can tailor my answer to that. So, yeah, it so gives you a little bit of context. It gives me, yeah, it gives me a sense of where they're coming from. And, and then I can ask them questions like, hey, what's it been like working in that industry? And we get to know each other. It's really nice. So I've, yeah. I've, I actually like the messaging section. They've redone messaging in LinkedIn, and I've gotten used to the new messaging thing. It's sort of this weird hybrid between instant messenger and email. And it almost works, but I, you know, it's idiosyncratic. But yeah, LinkedIn... Yeah. LinkedIn is Microsoft's way of reminding us that, that, that understanding users is actually important to the design process. Right. Um, we just actually had Nate from LinkedIn on the show um, a couple of weeks oh, cool. ago, um, and he was talking about their use of design systems and how they're using uh, some of these tools to, to make that entire experience better across the entire platform. So that's a, that's a good I haven't quite gotten to that at episode yet. I will now pump that up on my queue and make sure I go listen to that. I like yeah. to look at LinkedIn. Yeah, yeah, I think they're doing good work over there. And, and yeah. Nate was uh, pretty insightful in, into some of their process and, and their back-end systems. Yeah. That's well, cool. Jared, um, again, massive thanks for being on the show. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Um, I'd like to get you back on the show at some point in the future and get an update on all things UIE and Center Center and just kind of explore some of these topics in more detail. So uh, we'll get that on the calendar at some point. I would love point. that. I would absolutely and, uh, love that. We'll have to run and to you and Chattanooga. You. I did all the talking this time. Sometime we should talk about how you're doing and what you're up to. Yeah, we, well, we can do that. Maybe I'll come onto your podcast. That would be good. <laughs> yeah, we'll, <laughs> we'll look at setting that up. And uh, a rendezvous in uh, Chattanooga at some point sounds, would be fantastic. So. Yeah. If people want to come by and see the school, uh, just pop us a note. We would love to have you. Yeah, what's if, the URL to the school? Uh, centercenter.com, C-E-N-T-E-R-C-E-N-T-R-E.com. Um, and we'll put uh, that we in the show love, notes. Yeah, we would love to have you uh, come and visit. Every time someone comes and visit, we introduce them to students. We have them tell, talk a little bit about their work. We have them, you know, let, give the students a chance to ask questions about what it's like. So they learn the differences. They learn how people, everybody does something different. What they look for in new people. What 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 it's like to work there. What the what the big challenges are. What the little challenges are. You know, all those sorts of things. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Well, thanks again. Um, We will be in touch again real soon. That sounds fantastic. Take care, Jay. All right. Take care, Jay. That's it for today. Thanks for listening to Design Driven. We're glad you enjoy the show. Have comments, questions, or an idea that you'd like us to cover? Point your browser to designdriven.biz and click Contact Us on the top of your screen. We'd love to hear from you. 
Tell your friends and colleagues about the Design Driven Pod. Post on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or send them an email and tell them to go to designdriven.biz or wherever they find their podcasts. Until next time, remember what Thomas Watson, founder of IBM, said, good design is good business.